Hello and welcome everyone. This is Untold Stories podcast. I'm your host, Usama Gawish. And joining me today as a co-host, Genevieve Neveen. She's an activist, organizer, and law student based in Montreal, Canada. She is passionate about politics and social justice and is actively involved in movement for migrant rights and Palestinian solidarity, particularly within the Jewish community, as the former membership and fundraising coordinator with Independent Jewish Voices Canada. She has previously worked with the Peace and Justice Project and Egypt Watch, where she helped organize and moderate Selling Death, an international conference against the arms to raise awareness about the impacts of the global armed trade and mobilizing resistance to it. Thank you, Genevieve, for joining me today. And in today's episode, we have a very special guest, British politician, the founder and director of the Peace and Justice Project, the Member of Parliament, and the former leader of the Labour Party. A very warm welcome to our special guest in this episode, Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy, thank you very much for joining us today. It's my absolute pleasure to be with you, Osama, and my absolute pleasure to be with Genevieve as well. And it's been fantastic working with her on refugee rights, indigenous land rights, and human rights issues around the world through our project, the Peace Project, Peace and Justice, but also through Progressive International. So it's really excellent that she's here today with us. Okay, before I start the discussion for our listeners, you can join the discussion, ask Jeremy questions or make a contribution by pressing the call button on the right and you will be held on a caller's queue and then the floor will be yours. Um, and um, I just uh, need to mention that Jeremy with us via Zoom is not with us on Colin um, and so we can hear uh, him from Zoom. So Jeremy, yesterday marked the one-year anniversary of your organization, the Peace and Justice Project that you founded to bring people together for social and economic justice, peace and human rights in Britain and across the world. The Peace and Justice Project has been involved in projects advocating for environmental justice and the Green New Deal and for projects support migrants and refugees at home in Britain and abroad. Actually, this is such an important milestone. And my question is, what are some of the campaigns the Peace and Justice Project are working on that you are most proud of? Two, really. The first is the levels of international solidarity we've been able to mount in support of refugees and of asylum rights and of indigenous people's rights and solidarity with progressive movements around the world and obviously supporting people in, in Bolivia and Peru and Ecuador and our work with the Indian farmers. I'd also say that the issues of um, treatment of refugees around the world, to me, is a litmus test on how we measure our sense of humanity. There are 70 million people around the world who are refugees at the present time. They're all human beings looking for a place of safety and to survive in this world. And... Um, Today in the UK Parliament, the British government announced that from now on, the Royal Navy will take charge of the uh, border force activities in the English Channel. This is the short distance between Calais and Dover. 
which is shared waters between Britain and France at exactly the halfway point between the two countries. Uh, it goes from one jurisdiction to another. And the Navy will be patrolling on the British side, which is uh, 11 miles out, about 15 kilometres out into the channel. Hmm. And um, the point I made was that the ministers that are pushing this forward will go down in history as those that use the military against people seeking a place of safety. So I believe very strongly there's a complete lack of humanity in the whole process that is so appalling. And that doesn't just apply in Britain, it applies in many other places. And there's a whole atmosphere and hysteria built up about it uh, across Europe. Some people seem to forget their history. They uh, recognise that Jewish people were very badly treated in the 1930s. Those that have managed to escape from the horrors of Nazi Germany didn't always get that place of safety in Britain, in the USA, in Canada or elsewhere. They had to fight for it and many died on the way there. And uh, that history is, I hope, well understood. We seem to be repeating that sense of inhumanity and inhospitability towards refugees. The second campaign, there are many that I'd like to draw attention to, is the work we did at COP26 on environment, where we were there for the whole, whole week. We hired a theatre for a week and gave space there to community organisations and unions in Scotland and around the world. We had Brazilian farmers, we had Indian farmers, we had people from West Africa and East Africa. We had many, many different groups came there to discuss the effects of climate change, the poverty that brings about, and the conclusion of all of it was that without system change, you cannot actually do anything to mitigate or control climate change. Because if we run an economy, a world economy, based on um, extraction of raw materials, which inevitably pollute, whereas if you run an economy on the basis of need uh, rather than waste, then you get very, very different results. And I do think that mindset and thought process has begun to change on a global level. And uh, I found the experience in Glasgow very, very interesting. There are many areas we're involved, but the last one I'd say is this, and this is really something that's germane to what you're saying, Osama, that um, media and media values and media reporting is uh, a key issue. Because if we don't get access to the media for the kind of voices that we're talking about, if we don't have a media that is open, then the mainstream media turn decent people into villains and uh, create an atmosphere of hatred and fear against minorities. I've just come from a... Um, meeting in this building. I'm in the in SARS, the School of Oriental African Studies in London. Um, and we've just had a meeting about Julian Assange yeah. with his um, partner. Uh, Stella was here and she spoke extremely well, as you would imagine, um, as did others in support of um, Julian. And we talked about the media campaign behind it. In any different society, Julian Assange will be treated as a hero, but Julian Assange is treated somehow or other as a threat to our societies and an enemy because he spoke the truth about um, war crimes 
committed by the United States and the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and Libya. Take that back to the early discussion I had. When I said in Parliament today that um, people would have to be desperate to risk their lives to get in the tunnel to try and get to a place of safety, mm. and most of them came from countries where Britain had been involved in the wars, there was an uproar on the... Uh, Government benches and some of the opposition benches. Yeah, I, I, I want to. I, I want to. Um, I think about this kind of thing. Yeah, I did. So that's what we have to. Do. Okay. Anyway, the project is doing well. I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of the diversity of support and work we're doing, and it's going to be even bigger and even better in the next year. Okay, I, I will um, come later to Julian Assange's case because I interviewed last week Stella Morris. She was with me on our Tom Stories oh, podcast. Well. And she stressed uh, the importance of the campaigning uh, for releasing Julian from uh, prison and stopping his extradite. So I will come to this later, Jeremy. But regarding this um, important campaigns you mentioned from the Peace and Justice Project last year, how can people get involved with the campaigns and your work? Well, this is... Uh... Because of COVID, a lot of the stuff has been done online and we've had some excellent discussion meetings. But we also try to think in things with practical work that people can do. So where, for example, we're involved in a campaign for union recognition in particular places or factories, we will then mobilise those people to get involved straight away in that, get in touch with them. And we map where our supporters are across the UK and across the world. And we then, when there's a particular activity going on in the place, then we contact all of them and say, look, there's a big campaign for union recognition by these workers, be they clothing workers, makers, uh, gig economy, uh, whatever it happens to be, and get them involved. It's about practical involvement of people and building that sort of creative strength of um, community activity. Because if we want to bring about social change and social justice, it's not going to be done. Uh, by politicians on high. It's not going to be done by parliaments in remote places. It's going to be done by popular movements that in turn places that pressure on a political establishment. And can I give you one example? The House of Lords, which is uh, hardly my favourite institution, hereditary or appointed place, the second chamber of the British system, last night uh, defeated the government six times or the most draconian aspects of their police bill, which they're trying to put through Parliament, which would give the power to the police to prevent demonstrations, assemblies, and so on, a whole lot of very restrictive measures, all of which were defeated. They would not have been defeated if there hadn't been campaigns for the last six months all over the country um, against the police bill and against the repressive measures that is envisaged in it. So... um, it is a fact that activity does bring about results and change. If I may say so, on a wider scale, the election of Gabriel Boric as president of Chile, it's sort of hard to reconcile the fact that a very few years ago, he was a student activist leading the campaign for universal free education in Chile. A huge coalition came together of the political left and community activists and of indigenous people. And he's now the president of Chile. That is a massive result. And they're now having a sort of open public dialogue on what the future constitutional arrangements in Chile will be. Activism does bring about change, but it's very hard work.
Excellent. Thank you so much, Jeremy. And it's really great to be with both of uh, you and Osama. And of course, the last time I spoke with you both was last summer when we put on the Selling Death, an international conference against the arms trade, which was, of course, a, a, a collaboration between Egypt Watch and the Peace and Justice Project. Um, and that project yeah. was really incredible in bringing together people around the world to hear firsthand about the impacts of the global arms trade and how we can mobilize against it. So this, of course, is so important now more than ever. And I was wondering, I know you've already spoken a bit about it in your previous answers, but if you could speak to the connections between militarism and also the global refugee crisis. Well, today, as I said in Parliament, that the refugees crossing the channel, a large number of them come from Afghanistan, from Iraq, and from Syria, and from Libya. They're all countries where there is a deep conflict going on or has gone on. They're all places that are unstable. They're all places where there's been an enormous British military involvement, particularly in the case of Afghanistan and Iraq. And uh, we should think about the effects of war and cre creation of refugee flows. There are also a lot of refugees coming from Yemen at the present time. Why? Because uh, Saudi Arabia is being armed by Britain and uh, other countries, but particularly by Britain, in order to bomb Yemen. And the, the British military involved in advising Saudi Arabia on how to go about the bombing. And indeed, there are technical workers from British Aerospace that provides all of the equipment active in Saudi Arabia targeting the bombing. Yemen has now got the biggest humanitarian disaster of any country in the world. Children dying of cholera, hospitals being bombed, society divided and broken and breaking up very, very fast indeed. The force behind all this is actually the lobbying power of the arms companies to get deals. The sweetheart deals that have been done with Saudi Arabia, which has been biggest, one of the biggest arms buyers, but also United Arab Emirates, one of the biggest arms buyers. And it is those issues that are so crucial. The, the intersection, the interaction between the power of lobbying and the purchase of arms and the export of arms. And if you think about it, all armies are paid for by public expenditure. Public expenditure is absolutely the key to it. The United States has just passed its biggest ever defense budget. It is by far the biggest defense budget anywhere in the world by a long chalk. President Biden sent his annual request or the president's annual request to Congress to sign off the defense budget for the forthcoming year. Unusually, there were very few questions on the budget. There was a request to expand it even further. So Congress sent back to President Biden even more money than he asked for in the first place. Any of those Congress people in Washington, senators or members of the House, could have left that building, walked for 15 minutes, not much more than that, and you come across the start of thousands of people, homeless, destitute, sleeping rough, in the capital of the world's most powerful country. Well, 
it's not rocket science that if you spend all this amount on defense, it's unlikely you're going to have enough money left for the social programs, the health programs, the education and the housing and all those things that are necessary. Take that on a global scale. Post-COVID, surely to goodness, the lesson has to be that we need much better access to health care for people all over the world. Well, obvious, I would have thought. But no, that dream of universal access to health care hasn't happened. A very large number of people around the world have seen no sign of a vaccine or access to a vaccine at all. Only 5% of the population in the world's poorest countries have been vaccinated, whereas in the wealthier countries like my own and Canada and the USA and France and Germany and so on, the figures are 80, 90, 95% of the population. Pretty well everyone that wants to be vaccinated can and has been vaccinated. And so surely... This is a time for changing course. So I would bring together COVID and COP and say this has got to be the alternative to uh, the growth of the arms trade. But the arms trade, as Andrew Feinstein has often pointed out, he's written excellently as a former South African MP about the corrosive power of the arms trade lobby. And um, I think a campaign global campaigns are so important. So what we did agree at the end of our call on the refugees, which we did last summer, that we would meet again on another global call and we'd all report back on what we're doing in our own societies and our own countries to try and change the attitude and also change the attitude on militarism. Since then, I'll finish on this point, I haven't gone too long, is that Britain, the United States and Australia have now... Um, signed the AUKUS Pact, the AUKUS Agreement, and that AUKUS Agreement uh, provides for nuclear-powered, in the case of the U.S. nuclear-armed vessels, to be freely travelling around Southeast Asia, Australia, and the South China Sea, with the obvious effect that it will increase tension. Obviously, the pressure will then be on the government in China, to increase its arms expenditure because of the presence of these uh, perceived to be hostile vessels in their waters. There surely is no future in the world in just creating one new Cold War after another in different places. Um, and so the lessons are that the uh, arms trade is good and very effective at lobbying, has amazing skills and amazing facilities at its disposal. Just imagine if some of those resources had instead gone into dealing with the issues of global health inequality of the pandemics, and uh, we'd learned some lessons from that. And so I think um, an awful lot of people are waking up to very different, very radical, very alternative ideas, and that surely is what we're about on calls and discussions like this. And the problem is, Jeremy, when you talk about Saudi Arabia and Yemen and some Middle Eastern countries regarding the arms sales, and the last time I witnessed the army in front of the people, of the desperate people, uh, was in Egypt in 2013 when the army stormed the city in Rabah and um, made the Rabah massacre and killed more than 800 people. Yesterday, I, I was shocked as a refugee in the UK when I uh, listened to Preeti Patel, the Home Secretary, give a speech at the House of Commons regarding the draconian decision wherein she ordered the British Navy, 
the army to prevent any boat from crossing the English Channel. The Home Secretary insisted, and I quote, this government considers all options in terms of outsourcing, processing, and how we actually remove people with no legal basis to be in our country. Um, you have been a vocal critic of, of Patel's policies and her anti-migrant stance. How would you respond to this latest barrage of anti-immigrant policies and rhetoric? Because she supposed to use sonic weapons to scare asylum seekers during crossing the channel. Well, today, under some pressure of questioning, they said that um, the Navy will not use these um, sonic methods of deterring uh, people crossing the channel. But the equipment is already there on the border force boats. It yeah. can already be used by the border force boats and uh, is obviously very, very damaging to the health of everybody involved. Obviously, people that are risking their lives trying to cross the channel in very inadequate vessels, but also would affect anybody else in the area fishing people or whatever. It's um, completely inhuman. They denied they were going to use them, but if they're not going to use them, why have they got them there? Why are they there at all? And so it is uh, with a sense of deep sadness and anger that I heard what Priti Patel said yesterday and what the Ministry of Defence said today. And this, the use of the uh, army or the armed forces, the Navy in this case, in the channel to deter refugees is really horrible and um, the attitude taken by a lot of particularly conservative but some other MPs as well was that somehow or other this country Britain is faced with a massive problem of the number of refugees I understand the figure over the past year is around 20 to 25,000 people yeah. have tried to seek asylum in Britain well, you say 25,000, it sounds a lot. Um, a pretty much expect 56,000 the next year. And she said there was going to be 50,000, or in fact half the number that she said. That is um, 25,000 is the number of people that attend an average lower league football match on a weekly basis in this country. 25,000 is not very many. Yeah. Also, if they think about it, amongst those 25,000, amongst those desperate people trying to make it, make it to Britain to live in a place of safety, a lot of young people, they're going to be our doctors, our nurses, our teachers, our engineers, our care workers of tomorrow. And uh, the same applies all across Europe. And this horrible attitude towards people that are fleeing to gain a place of safety really has got to change and be replaced by humanity. And uh, as I said to the minister, I said history is going to judge people very harshly who use the armed forces against refugees looking for a place of safety. But um, Downing Street Germany is also looking to send migrants to countries such as Rwanda, Ghana and Gambia for processing and resettlement. To prevent migrants. Today, indeed, that's a good point, Osama. Yeah. Many today in the UK Parliament used the example of Australia and its out.
sourcing of its refugees when it sends them to um, Papua New Guinea and various other places out in the Pacific, um, saying that no refugee can land in Australia. Well, it might go down well with a certain group or portion of the electorate in Australia, Hmm. but actually it's a deeply inhuman way of approaching things. And the Rohingya that have fled from Myanmar, fled from the army in Myanmar, many were killed on the way, driven out of their own country. The majority sought and gained um, a relative place of safety in Bangladesh. They're living in camps. They're not great. They're not not good. Camps are never a great place to be. Uh, Others didn't manage to get to Bangladesh and went off to other places. And some of them were on boats in the ocean, being rebuffed in country after country, again, from from Thailand and other countries and Malaysia, they were rebuffed, and indeed Indonesia. And last week, finally, Indonesia relented on one particular vessel and allowed the people to land. Well, what are we doing? What are we doing as a world when people are driven from their own homes by a military armed by international famous name countries driving people out and we just say well it's nothing to do with us sorry if you sell arms to people and supply arms to people it becomes everything to do with us there is another point um, i want to raise with you jeremy in last year i interviewed two rwandan sisters in the Untold Stories podcast, they narrated their father's sad story. Their father is Paul Rosisabagina, the hot Rwanda real hero, and he's now in jail in Rwanda. So the question is, how do you see the government intentions to send migrants to such countries with a very bad records of human rights and a minimum level of safety? I have had the good fortune to visit Rwanda um, on two occasions, and... Um, the obviously the genocide that happened unbe- unbelievable that happened and quite frightening and I found it um, awful talking to children in school who described this was much nearer to the massacres than now describe what had happened to them and their family and the way in which their whole lives had been disrupted and um Unfortunately, the human rights record since then in Rwanda is far from perfect. There are many, many issues at stake there. But if you're going to say that Rwanda will be a place that we will send refugees to, what's going to happen to them there? What are they going to do there? Why should the Rwandan government be expected to support refugees that were wanting to come to Britain or uh, well, mainly Britain in this case, and I just think the, the whole idea of outsourcing is just fundamentally wrong. And when Conservative MPs particularly keep on saying that these are illegal asylum seekers, a lot of MPs pointed out, particularly some from the Scottish National Party, there's no such thing as being an illegal asylum seeker. There is a legal convention, international right to seek asylum. It's in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's also in the um, 1951 Refugee Convention. So these things, that international law is actually quite important. And I do think we should all be uh, assiduous in supporting and attending 
the uh, UN Human Rights Council as a way of giving some global platform, a global voice to this. Great, thank you so much, Jeremy. Um, and of course, I'm joining you from Canada, from the unceded and unsurrendered lands of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples. And, and I'm joining you from a country that's notorious for both its violent dispossession of Indigenous people within this country, but also uh, around the world. And um, most rec recently, this includes raids by the Royal Canadian, Canadian Mounted Police, or the RCMP, against uh, Indigenous land def defenders in Wet'suwet'en territory. And those listeners who may be uh, unfamiliar with what's happening here in Canada, we can we can provide you with some links after this session. Um, but of course, Canada is also actively involved in land theft and suppression of Indigenous rights globally, uh, in particular in regards to mining and extractivism industries. So I was wondering, Jeremy, if you could speak to the importance of supporting Indigenous-led movements uh, in defense of land, and, and more specifically about the role of colonialism in fueling displacement and forced migration around the world? Colonialism is of its nature brutal. It um, seeks to impose a different culture and a different occupation on indigenous peoples and destroy their ability to meet to and relate to and organize together. The experience of um, Native Americans in the USA, um, of Native Canadians and the way in which First Nation Canadians were assimilated, so-called, into special schools and denied their right to speak their language or develop their own culture or maintain their own culture. Exactly the same happened in Australia with Aboriginal people. It didn't happen to the same extent in New Zealand, um, partly because of the Treaty of Waikaki and also the different relationship. But around the world, the history of colonialism is one of trying to destroy the um, cultures that are already there. And uh, I was in Mexico two weeks ago, and uh, there's something very interesting about the various Mexican cultures. There's the pre um, the pre-Aztec culture and the pre-Mayan cultures that are there and very and still around, very powerful. There is obviously a huge legacy of both the Maya and the Aztec. And then you look at the enormous Catholic churches that are dotted all over Mexico. Look carefully at the building. What do you see? But the stones of the Mayans and the Aztecs that have been used to build those churches, in some cases, built quite deliberately on top of um, a religious shrine of uh, those cultures. But the interesting thing about Mexico is that uh, unlike the United States, which um, does not routinely discuss or teach um, pre-Columbian history of the USA, in Mexico it's very, very different. There is an acknowledgement, acceptance and understanding of that diversity of that culture. And I do think the um, message that we got from Black Lives Matter's movements after the, well, before as well, but after particularly the death of George Floyd, was that uh, we have to understand what colonialism and colonial history has actually done. And uh, these debates um, need to go on, this discussion needs to go on, but above all, our children need to understand a history of the world, which isn't the history 
are the victors, those that enslaved Africans, those that transported uh, millions of people across the Atlantic, many to die on the way, and then those that didn't die to be enslaved for the rest of their lives in the Caribbean or in the Americas. No, that has to be part of the history our children are taught. It wasn't an aberration in history, it was part and parcel of the whole colonial experience. And Jeremy, if we come back to the UK again, the nationality and border bill, which is making its way through the Lords, uh, would make it a criminal offence to attempt to enter the UK without a visa. And you know, plenty of asylum seekers, they didn't secure a visa. And it would also allow the government to remove person's citizenship without telling them. My question, is this the right way to solve the migrants' issue? And what are your views on the nationality and border pills? Well, I'm very opposed to the nationality and border bill for many reasons. Um, I'll give you two examples, one of which is that it would criminalize anyone who tried to save the life of an asylum seeker. So put it this way, if Genevieve, you and I were walking along the beach in Dover in, in England, And we had a small boat or a craft at our disposal, and we saw a group of people a few hundred meters out at sea who were clearly in difficulty, in danger of drowning, and they were migrants, asylum seekers. What we do, we would go straight out to them, do everything we could to render them assistance and save their lives. It's what Royal National Lifeboat Institution does every day. They're in danger of being criminalized on the charge of assisting people to seek illegal settlement in Britain. It's absolutely disgusting and outrageous. And so for that reason alone, the bill should be opposed. But the other one is that it gives the power to the Home Secretary, who is responsible for interior ministry, ministry affairs, as, as it would be called in other countries, to remove or revoke the citizenship of any British national, UK citizen, that could conceivably have access to another nationality. Now, there are several million people in Britain who were either born in other countries, or one or both their parents, or one or both their grandparents were born in other countries. There are some processes in some countries that if you have um, a grandparent from that country, you can apply for citizenship of that country. Apply, it's not automatic, it doesn't make you a citizen of that country, it means you have a right to apply. Some countries do not allow it at all. Yet, the British Home Secretary will be given the powers under this legislation to remove the nationality of potentially more than a million people in Britain. It is a massive power given to the Home Office to revoke citizenship, creating stateless people. And the reaction is going to be, this, this is it. How about this? This can be copied in other parts of the world. Are we really going to leave a legacy of this period of the 21st century of millions of stateless people around the world at a time when we need something very, very different? We need their skills and their energies put to improving this world, not becoming victims of the inhumanity and injustice. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, and you've been vocal, you know, even within this interview uh, about you know, 
advocating for a Green New Deal and the need to have comprehensive climate policies that also take into account climate refugees and, and see the world through a migrant justice lens. And as governments are working like, like the UK government, like the Canadian government to shut out migrants while at the same time increasing the production of fossil fuels and resource extractivism, can you speak to the connections between refugees and the climate crisis? Uh, what do you think the UK government and governments all around the world should be doing? Well, there are many people who clearly are climate refugees that um, if they're living in an area of, say, North Africa, where the Sahara Desert is expanding very rapidly, for reasons of climate change, but also possibly from reasons of land management, and they lose a place to live, they're going to have to go somewhere else. There are also those that are refugees because of land grabbing and land theft, or because of crop failure, or because of drought, or because of flooding. These are all people that are victims, one way or the other, of the climate emergency that we are, we are facing. And so those that think we can just carry on burning fossil fuels ad nauseum and it won't make any difference. I've seen figures today which suggest that if nothing is done, by the end of this century, the global temperature rise won't be 1.5 or 2 degrees centigrade, it'll be 4 degrees centigrade. Genevieve was talking about the refugee crisis and the uh, climate change. The climate crisis and yes. the predictions that are around that if nothing is done, global temperatures could rise by 4 degrees centigrade by the end of the century. That's more than double the uh, worst estimates of the um, International Commission on Climate Change. And so I do think uh, that gives added impetus to ending fossil fuels. Now, it was said at uh, COP26 that Britain, for example, British companies could no longer either invest in fossil fuels in this country or anywhere else abroad. Um, I asked the Prime Minister about this quite specifically after the Glasgow conference. He said that that was the case, but there were uh, obviously nuances to it. And I'm very suspicious that the City of London will carry on investing in um, uh, in fossil fuel industries. Okay, cool. And we have uh, one of our listeners, uh, Matthew. Matthew, if you unmute yourself, please. Howdy. Good afternoon. Uh, good evening. It's good evening. Uh, morning here on the West Coast, but good evening to you. So, so I wonder in terms of the practicality of, of how we're going to address climate change, because when I think of the American voter and what we're seeing now in American politics, I don't see an electorate that wants to do something, you know, have like three times burger sin taxes, have three times gasoline, you know, jet fuel sin taxes, which, you know, is what we need to do to stop it. I just don't see the political will here. And I see the countries that have all of the fossil fuels like Russia, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE. I see them being kind of right wing and hating the idea of fossil fuels and spending a lot of money to or hating the idea of ending fossil fuels and spending a lot of money to sabotage efforts to address climate change. It makes me very much not optimistic, both of those two facts. I wonder how what your response is to that and, and what you're thinking about that. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, Jeremy. 
if you want to. Yes, yeah. thank you. Thanks for the, thanks for the points. Thanks for the question. I think you're quite right. There are many people in the US, not just in the USA, in Europe and in Britain as well, who are extremely sceptical about this and feel very nervous about their economic future, about their ability to drive a car and the jobs that they would have um, because of all the issues surrounding climate change. And so I was very well aware of all this in developing our own policies. And so I developed the idea of the Green Industrial Revolution, which actually creates more jobs, not less, in renewables and um, recycling, but particularly renewable energy industry, um, is a very big job creator. And likewise, uh, greening our transport systems with uh, higher levels of electric usage, it's not a zero-sum game, there is still pollution involved in generation electricity, but it's a lot less than burning fossil fuels. Um, it does actually create a cleaner and better society. And I simply say to people, if you want to live in an urban area, and the majority of the world's population do live in urban areas, and urbanization is probably going to increase rather than decrease, then you want to live in a clean, sustainable environment. You cannot do that if you're filling up your cities with um, fossil fuel burning vehicles and fossil fuel consuming industries. You can only do that if you convert to public transport, to electric, electric vehicles, and you have an energy production system which is um, is utilising the power of the sun, is rainwater, is, is, is uh, solar panels rather, and of course the um, development of hydro and uh, wave, wave power. All of these things are quite possible. And indeed, there has been a huge swing in favour of um, uh, renewable energy in Britain. And I'm very pleased about that. So I do think we can excite people with the idea of a clean, green future. But if you approach the whole thing on the basis of blaming people because they drive a polluting car or own a polluting truck and, and drive it, you actually have to give them a way out of that and an incentive out of that. So it does mean public investment in all this. Great. Um, and just shifting topics uh, here a little bit to something that you had spoken to at the beginning of this interview. Uh, but across the, the country, your organization, the, the Peace and Justice Project, has been setting up news clubs, which you describe as a space for people to discuss what's in the news and what's not, and also hear from local and national campaigns to hear what's really happening behind the headlines and to start to build a new independent media landscape. Uh, and this really speaks to the fact that media and independent media is under attack in Britain and in Canada and in other countries around the world. So can you speak to the importance of both this initiative by the Peace and Justice Project, but also of independent media and how we can fight back against media consolidation and, and support independent journalists? It's giving voice and enthusiasm and optimism to people. And <clears throat> that means looking particularly at the way in which not just the mainstream media operate in the sense of newspapers and mainstream television channels, but also the way in which the social media platforms oper operate and the use of algorithms that they're so effective at in um, directing us the news they think we want to hear and to the interests they think we have. And actually, without 
being very obvious about it, completely controlling our lives and our thought process. They also, um, when required to by repressive regimes, shut down all internet access in certain places. Look what happens to Indian farmers at the height of their protest. Look what happens to human rights activists in other parts of the world. So these things are important. So a very important aspect of the peace and justice work this year is going to be on media and on the question of continuing the Leveson inquiry, which happened in Britain after a lot of abuses by a number of papers and the right of reply and the need for multiplicity of ownership. Those things to me are important. But it's also about empowering people by them being able to talk to each other. And so that means our um, campaigns and discussion meetings where we're supporting environmental justice campaigns, where we're supporting union recognition campaigns, to me are very, very important. And also the crucial acts of international solidarity, and that is something that uh, we all should do all of the time. There is um, a need for people to come together and analyse the dangers that they're going into uh, with the arms trade, which we discussed, and the dangers that brings about the Cold War, and the huge tensions that are there between Ukraine and Russia at the moment. That means mobilizing people and it means them being informed and that's why to me the work of the peace and justice project is a political home for people whatever party they're in it's a political home from which they can develop campaigns it's a resource to be used but to me our priority this year has to be on challenging the media and empowering alternative media groups and alternative media sources and building up our own independent media alliances around the world. I don't want forever to only be able to talk to people because somebody, um, a very rich person in California, thinks it's okay to do that. I want to have that right to talk to people using this kind of technology. Hmm. And regarding the independence of the media, Jeremy, um, last week in the UK, you, we, we all following the, the massive debate about the new government decision of freezing the BBC TV license uh, money. So um, regarding the implication of freedom of press and independence of ministry media in the UK, how did you see this decision? Yeah, well, the BBC is um, almost a unique organization around the world in that it is a public service broadcaster uh, established as the British Broadcasting Company and then in 1922 became the BBC. In effect, it was um, made the public service broadcaster three years from that time. <coughs> its um, strapline is that it is there to educate, entertain and inform. Um, I have many arguments with the BBC and its news reporting and its news values, and I've made many complaints about the way we've treated my party and me over the years, and I will continue with those complaints. It's funded by a license system. The license system uh, means that the population have to pay a license of over £150 a year in order to access BBC programmes, which they can automatically access through um, free-to-air broadcasting on any television set. Um, there are some complaints about the license system, but in effect, by paying £150 a year for a license, you get um, far more than you get if you're paying to Sky or Virgin or BT or any other 
uh, any other platform. The government has decided that it, it's never liked the BBC very much. It's appointed people to the BBC who are much closer politically to the government, and it's now announced that the licence fee is going to be frozen and then ended altogether in four years' time. And in effect, it's going to turn the BBC into a, um, a corporation that's got to raise its own money, which means that it will become a commercial corporation. It's going to have to uh, borrow money. It's going to have to charge for access. Probably its website will be the first place it will begin to charge for access because it is a huge and uh, much-accessed um, news-gathering and sport-gathering organization. Um, my fear is that it will go the same way as the United States public broadcasting system. Public broadcasting system was public radio uh, across the across the USA and later television. And um, in its day, it was a very powerful medium and it was designed to be informative and relatively independent. It now exists on the largesse of charities that keep it going. The news values are decided by the big broadcasters like Fox News. I'm fearful that our media will descend to those levels and Fox News will become the dominant force within it. And so uh, there will be a big campaign no doubt in Parliament, but also through the National Union of Journalists and the International Federation of Journalists to protect the principle of public service broadcasting. And that's not to say there's one without criticism of BBC, I'm absolutely not, but I do recognise that as a public service broadcaster, it's something that's very important. You are raising many values regarding the freedom of press and the independence of media, but when it comes to a publisher or a reporter, Julian Assange, everything changed, Jeremy. Last week, I interviewed Stella Morris, the lawyer, and Julian Assange, fiancé, along with Rebecca Benson, the director of Reporters Without Border here in the Untold Stories podcast. And they both stressed on the importance of campaigning for Assange release and stopping his extradition. And you mentioned this in the beginning of this um, episode. You're in SOAS University and attending an event about Assange. But from your perspective, Jeremy, why the United States, the United Kingdom, are acting like any authoritarian regime, ignoring the public interest, freedom of press, when it comes to Julian Assange? Well, Julian Assange revealed a lot of very uncomfortable truths. Truths about the behavior of particularly the United States, but other countries as well, the power and influence of the CIA around the world, and the war crimes that were committed in Afghanistan, and the illegal nature of the war in Iraq. And Julian has, um, in his, throughout his life, worked very hard as a very, very independent, a very genuine journalist. He was then sought for prosecution. He, was offered asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he lived for some years. He was under constant surveillance there, and there was a great deal of dishonesty by some of the people in the embassy that were putting him under surveillance, monitoring his phone calls and his correspondence, and his computer as well. And he did a lot of information went missing from there. The government changed in um, Ecuador, and he was then... Um, taken out of the embassy, arrested, and put in um, a maximum security prison, HMP Belmarsh, which is where he still is. Um, he opposed an extradition request by the United States um, on 
many grounds, but including those of his health. His application was successful in the sense that the judge ruled that there was a danger to his life of being sent to the United States as a maximum security prison. The Trump administration launched an appeal against this right of the dying days of the Trump administration, whilst at the same time, apparently President Trump was seriously considering granting a pardon to Julian Assange. President Biden, sadly, has not um, continued considering a pardon to Assange, but said uh, launched an appeal which was um, successful in part in the courts of Britain. So we're now mounting a campaign that Julian Assange not be removed from Britain because at the end of the day, um, extradition arrangements do require the uh, permission, authority and consent of the relevant interior minister, stroke home secretary. And so we are mounting a big campaign for Julian. Two weeks ago, I was in Mexico with my wife, Laura, and we had the pleasure of meeting uh, President Lopez Obrador and attending his uh, press conference, and he repeated the offer that Mexico made of um, a lifetime asylum for Julian Assange and the freedom to live in Mexico, if that's what he wishes and that's what he chooses to do. And they've also uh, informed the United States of that as well. And indeed, President López Obrador did put pressure on President Trump the dying days of the Trump administration to uh, allow Julian Assange to go free from prison. So we're keeping up that campaign for him to go free. He is a journalist who's told some uncomfortable truths. Let's be honest about it. If he'd been the equivalent journalist in a country that the US and Britain don't like, say Russia, say China, he'd be treated as a hero in the West. But because he's exposed the truths about the wars and the war crimes that have been committed, he's treated as a villain here. And he is not convicted in the British courts of anything, yet he's in a maximum security prison in a tiny cell with very little access to visitors, very little support, um, other than that that um, Stella Morris and uh, his very close friends are able to offer to him. So Julian is in a very difficult situation at the moment. He does deserve our international support and solidarity to allow him to go through. Yeah. Thank you, Jeremy, and, and thank you also to Osama. This has been such a, an amazing conversation. Um, and my final question, I wanted to end today in the style of my all-time favorite, one of my all-time favorite independent journalists, um, Amy Goodman from Democracy Now!, who on her episodes... Yes, no, I'm a big fan. Um, she asked a really critical question to each of her guests, which is, what gives you hope? And, you know, we're, we're living in a time of intersecting social, environmental, and health crises. And we need kind of movements of solidarity and people coming together to make us kind of optimistic. So what would you say to, to people around the world who are really needing a, a little bit of hope right now? Genevieve, what gives me hope is young people around the world re-exploring history, re-exploring the environmental alternatives, re-exploring the ideas of a peaceful world rather than a world based on war. What gives me hope is that determination of people to stand up to power where they need to, to struggle and to achieve massive change. It's always difficult, 
always hard. But what also inspires me is the growth of music, the growth of art, the growth of literature. And it's in that imagination that's there, particularly in young people, that real freedom lies. And so I'm very hopeful for the future, very hopeful for that determination. And uh, I, I spend every day dealing with endless day-to-day -day political problems and all the struggles that can completely enmesh and take over your life. But it's also important to uh, remember there's an awful lot of people out there that are isolated, need help and support, and there's no end to what they can achieve given that opportunity. So let's invest in the next generation, invest in education, invest in culture, invest in climate sustainability, and that will create a better world for the future. And never forget from where we've come. Never forget the importance of understanding our history, the mistakes, the brutality, as a way of making sure that they're not repeated in the future. From our past, we can shape our future. This was an amazing answer, Jeremy. And um, I want to ask you, Jeremy, this is my final question. Do you think, what are the most untold stories globally we should cover in the Untold Stories podcast? I think the achievements of um, often small communities in different places around the world that do succeed in making sure their forests are not destroyed in, in India, to make sure their language is preserved in parts of, of Latin America. It is about the stories of small communities and empowerment goes with it. And too often we tend to be guided by whatever um, the big news corporations decide is news around the world. And their idea of news around the world is always um, the richest countries in the Northern Hemisphere. Well, it's not always like that. I want to hear what's going on in different countries in Africa. I want to hear what's going on in different parts of Latin America and South Asia. So it's those struggles and stories which are often harder to get and harder to find. But by goodness, they are inspiring when you hear them. Thank you very much, Jeremy Corbyn, the founder and director of the Peace and Justice Project and the former leader of the Labour Party in the United Kingdom. And thank you for our co-host today, Genevieve Naveen, and thank you for all our listeners. And stay tuned next Tuesday, a special episode from the Untold Stories podcast in the 11th anniversary of the Egyptian Revolution. Thank you all. Bye. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you very much.